Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. I'm up and down today. Uh, we are starting a brand new series this morning. Um, this is the series is called the King's Speech, and I tried my very best to have Colin Firth join us uh, for this sermon, but he's very busy, you know, with being famous and whatever. But he sends his regards to you. Um, in this in this new series, uh, we're going to explore the Sermon on the Mount. And even if you're kind of new to church, you might be familiar with this sermon. It's one of it's the one that has that list of all the ways uh, that Jesus says we're blessed, even when we're experiencing a whole bunch of stuff everybody would rather avoid. Right. Do you know that where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn and blessed are the meek. And what does meek even mean anyway? Really? And then later in the sermon, he says stuff like you've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fires of hell. So. Yikes. Okay. Uh, and he says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And he says, don't worry about what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. And even that classic Christian teaching, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's all in the Sermon on the Mount. Do those sound familiar? They're pretty big things, and we've heard them, uh, but we might not practice them all the time. Uh, John Stott is a a well-known and respected theologian from this century, and he wrote a book about the Sermon on the Mount called Counterculture. Here's how he opens his book. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. Let's hear that again. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. Think back over your week for a minute. In light of just those few little snippets from the Sermon on the Mount, how did you do? I mean, you probably didn't murder anybody, right? Although you should see me after the service if you can't say that for sure. (laughs) You probably didn't murder anybody. Um, But have you been angry with someone? Have you, like, called someone a fool or... Something like that, (laughs) right? (laughs) Even in your mind while you're driving? Oh, it's always while we're driving. Okay. Um, Have you seen someone, a man or a woman, and lusted after them? How about praying for your enemies? How often are we doing that? (laughs) I think John Stott was right. Uh, We know these teachings. We know them. Of course we do. But we might not understand them. And we definitely don't obey them. 
<laughs> You'll notice I'm using the pronoun we, right? So what are we supposed to do with that? The most famous teachings, but the least understood and the least obeyed. Let's start with the question of understanding, okay? We're, we'll have lots of time, I'm sure, to deal with obedience later. Um, what, what is the Sermon on the Mount? How did that thing take place? It's a, this is a striking piece of scripture, really. Like, if you read any of the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you read those, what you notice is that Jesus is really active. He's doing a lot of things. He's moving from place to place. There's a lot of description. Um, he's with a lot of people, but he usually doesn't talk too much. I mean, he talks, like he has lots to say, but he's not one to go on and on and on, which is odd because the people who are talking about Jesus um, usually do go on and on and on, <laughs> right? Not not me, obviously, but uh, some people. Okay. I thought that was funny. <laughs> uh, there we are. Okay. Um, but this sermon, like the Sermon on the Mount, it's three whole chapters just Jesus talking. There's no breaks. There's not even a break where the narrator steps in to tell you what the weather is like or how people are responding. Just three whole chapters where Jesus talks. It's his longest speech. And so, so some scholars, because of that, they've, as they've studied the sermon, they think maybe Jesus didn't really teach it, like deliver it all in one go like that. Maybe it's more like a collection of tidbits of sayings of Jesus that Matthew collected from different times and put together in his book so they'd be easier for us to find. On the other hand, some scholars have argued that it it needs to be one thing. It must be one thing because both of the authors who record it, Matthew and Luke, are really clear and they agree about the time and the place that it happened. They both say he had been traveling through Galilee and then he comes out of the town and he goes up on a mountain with his friends to talk about this stuff. And they both say that when he came down off the mountain, he headed into Capernaum. And that's a lot of consistency of time and place. And it leads scholars to believe that the like going up a mountain to have a chat event really did happen. But on the third hand, or whatever number it is, it seems clear that uh, what's recorded in Matthew, like that can't be a word for word verbatim talk that Jesus gave. Because even if it's a long speech written down, it only takes about 13 minutes to read straight through. And y'all know no preacher has ever talked for just 13 minutes, right? Nobody's in my sermon's not 13 minutes. Some of you are wishing I would just read you the Sermon on the Mount. We could go home. <laughs> so one suggestion, which is my favorite one, my new favorite one this week, uh, is scholars have suggested that maybe the Sermon on the Mount is a summary of some teaching that Jesus did um, all at one time, but over a couple of days. This guy said, maybe maybe Jesus took some people up on the mountain as sort of a retreat and a period of time that was set aside so that they could be together and learn from Jesus in a focused way. And I love that idea. Like, I love retreats. <laughs> you know, I've been on youth retreats and been to camp reunions and conferences. And I've been on retreats here with the leadership team and with the Timothy Project last year. There's something 
different about going away together. There's something about learning and then going to like sleep in bunk beds that are uncomfortable and, you know, and then coming back to learn some more and going on a hike. It's really lovely to be away together. In 2006, when I was first starting, it was my first year working as a campus minister with InterVarsity, and we took our leadership team away for a retreat at someone's cottage. It was a team of six, and here they are. They're in a tree. Anyway, um, and these students were going to be the leaders of their campus Christian fellowship. And we had gone a couple months earlier in May to this conference together where you spend a week studying the first half of the Gospel of Mark. Now, some of you studied the first half of the Gospel of Mark with me last year. And, I mean, granted, we only did it once a week, but it took us the better part of eight months to get through it. Right. And these guys did it. They do it in six days. It is something else. Like, I hope you get to try that sometime. It's it's intense. Three times a day, you end up studying for nine hours and you do it for six days. And it's such focused learning and perspective about what Jesus is doing, what he's bringing into the world. And then we all went our separate ways for the summer. But in July, we got a three day weekend together. And our plan for that time was to take all the learning we had done in the Gospel of Mark and figure out how to apply it to our life together on campus. How would they work together? We spent our days asking, what is this thing that Jesus is offering? What is the reality of life with him really like? And those are great questions because the answers are things like healing and No more shame, full acceptance and belonging, and purpose for every life, unexpected friendships, new family, forgiveness from sin, room to make mistakes, tons of possibility, partnership with people you never imagined, no fear, no anxiety, no limits on what's possible. And as that picture came into focus, we started to see what it might mean on campus. And it's exciting because on a university campus, full acceptance and no shame means no one lonely and isolated, right? Which means a radical decrease in the rates of depression and suicide. That's really practical. It matters. And room to make mistakes and forgiveness for, for, um, for them. That means that there's increased opportunity for trying things out, for creativity and innovation. And in a university campus, what that means is new possibilities for making the world better. New family and unexpected friendships means that people can really be known and loved no matter what their family background is like. It means that it actually becomes safer For women and for people of color to walk around at night on their own. Like, really, if Jesus got a hold of a university campus, things would really be different. And I've rarely seen a group of young adults as excited as these guys were as they kind of put those pieces together. Their eyes shining, breathless with ideas, talking over each other. They're ready to do anything they can do to make that vision a reality. And so then the next question was, well, what would that require of us? What would we have to do? 
And we came up with a list and we wrote it down and then we all signed it. We promised each other that we would do whatever it took to live in such a way that our vision for Jesus being king on that campus could become a reality. Now, it was pretty long, right, because we were trying to be specific about it. It's, it was a covenant, like not unlike the behavioral covenant that we have together that's on the wall in the front hallway. It defines the way we're going to live and act together. Now, okay, here's why I'm telling you this story. Some of you know that my friends uh, Stuart and Corinne came and spent a month in Creston, right? They left last week, and they were so delighted to meet you. You guys, people welcomed them really well, and they had a good time here. Um, well, Stu was part of that team, and he was, he was on that retreat in 2006, and over dinner a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about that retreat, and he was teasing me a bit about how long and involved our behavioral covenant was, because it was, and I was laughing, and then he sort of stopped suddenly and looked at me, and he said, you know what, though? I still have that covenant. I know exactly where that piece of paper is. Because I still want to live that way. He's kept that piece of paper for 13 years. And it's not because he's a hoarder, right? It's not. It's, it's because that thing that we wrote was not a cumbersome list of rules for us that we had to follow. It didn't shut us down or discourage us. Not at all. It called us forward. It was a vision and a dream that we had together, a roadmap for building an entirely new way of life together, and we loved it. We loved it. And so as we begin this series, I'm offering us this vision of Jesus away on a leadership retreat, and I wonder if we could understand the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount like the notes we get at the end of a meeting. You know, I mean, in the best possible way. Could we understand this teaching as the covenant we keep in our wallet for 13 years? Because that's the way forward with a new life, life in the kingdom of Jesus. I think that makes sense. I think that Jesus had just started his public ministry He'd been traveling a bit. He'd been healing people and teaching and freeing them from evil influences in their lives. And he's talking about the kingdom of heaven coming really close, coming to earth. And word about him is spreading and crowds of people are starting to follow him around. And he is getting this little group of people around him who are really committed to learning from him. They're called his disciples, and in Matthew 5, verse 1 and 2, well, we read, Matthew says, Now, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He's got some new followers, and faced with massive crowds, Jesus goes up a hill (laughs) to get a bit of space, get some time alone, with the disciples and teach them. And what he teaches them, we're going to discover, are these incredible lessons about who they were created to be and how the people of the kingdom of heaven, his kingdom, live on earth. And it's wonderful. I asked us at the beginning to reflect on our weeks 
And we were realizing together maybe we hadn't done such a great job of living out the fullness of the Sermon on the Mount. But what if we had? What if we had really lived all of those things all week? Imagine a week in your life where you don't feel any anxiety about your appearance. No wondering if you're too fat or too short or too gray. Just peace, acceptance, and delight, and trust that all the people around you feel the exact same way. Imagine a week with no posturing, no jockeying for position, no trying to prove you're the strongest, the most together, the most spiritual. What if instead you had only met people who were humble? who were genuinely trying to do their best and cheering you on to do yours. No guilt. Imagine a week with no lust. Imagine women and men working together, trusting and valuing each other for their gifts and their talents and their quirks. Imagine walking into a room and looking each other in the eye instead of any body scanning. Imagine always feeling safe and respected and equal. Wouldn't you want to live that way all the time? John Stott wrote his book in 1978, and in the introduction, he talks about all the young people around him who were terribly disillusioned with society. Now, some of you were the young people in 1978, okay? And here's what he says. He says, they hate The greedy affluence of the West, which seems to grow ever fatter by exploitation of either the natural environment or developing nations or both. They register their complete rejection by living simply, dressing casually, going barefoot, avoiding waste. They hunger for authentic relationships of love. They despise the superficiality of both irreligious materialism and religious conformism, for they sense that there is an awesome reality far bigger than these trivialities. They hate the very concept of the rat race, and they consider it more honorable to drop out than to participate. And all this is symptomatic of the, the inability of the younger generation to accommodate themselves to the status quo or acclimatize themselves to the prevailing culture. They are not at home. They are alienated. And in their quest for an alternative, counterculture is the word they use. I think that Jesus would have loved hippies. Don't you? 1978, that's who he's talking about, right? (laughs) And I think, good, yeah, they would have loved him, Jesus. No wonder such powerful revival movements came out of that time. And in every generation before and since, there have been people who feel this way, young and old who somehow believe there must be something else. There must be more than this. There must be another way to live. And that is exactly what Jesus is proposing. And it's not just a retreat or a commune or a monastery somewhere. It's a whole new kingdom. 
If you've been with us for the last few weeks, we've been learning about uh, the life of Joseph, of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and how God never forgets his plans or his people or his promises. God shows that family, Joseph's family, starting with his great-grandfather, Abraham, and he chose them for himself because he wanted a special people that he could covenant with, a people he could teach about himself and set apart for this purpose, to be a blessing to all the other nations on the earth. And last week at the end of the series, Tom told us how that promise ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In Matthew 28, right at the very end, of his time on earth, Jesus sends his followers out with a promise and a mission. All authority, he says, on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is finally ushering in that kingdom, that people that God had always planned. But it's not through biological ancestry anymore. It's through baptism and discipleship instead. It's through obedience to the way that Jesus lived and the things he taught about. And you know what those things are? The Sermon on the Mount. He's the new king, Jesus. And as he sets about his work on earth, he's establishing this kingdom. Everywhere he goes, it's getting established. And when he goes up the mountain and starts talking, that's the king's speech over his kingdom. It's his manifesto, his rallying cry. His promise of something more, something far better. His picture of a totally countercultural reality, an upside-down kingdom that we as his people, we are going to live that into being with him. You know, the way that Jesus taught us to live, like living the way he taught, that would be a killer evangelism strategy. Forget programs in music, and a trendy online presence, if we as the church would really live the Christian life as described in the Sermon on the Mount, people would be breaking down our doors, asking, what is the secret of this thing? And that, unfortunately, doesn't always happen, right? Too often, the church looks uncomfortably similar to the rest of society. We treat our work and our money and our time pretty much the same way our colleagues do. We treat our families the same way. Rates of domestic violence and divorce among Christians are the same as in society in general. We deal with conflict in the same messed up way everybody else does. We're just as arrogant and prideful, just as selfish. We try, we actually really try to do our best. But we end up living all these normal ways because it's the only thing we've ever seen or known. And the king's speech offers us an alternative. It's not like a little tweak or a touch-up. It's a whole different way of living. What if you, 
if we lived this way instead? Like, really, what if we actually did the stuff he says? And what if we kept doing it every day? Like, forever. What would that even be like? That's the question that we're going to ask every week in this series. What if we lived this way instead? And I hope that we won't hear it as like legalistic or as a set of too high expectations. I hope that we hear it as an invitation, as a cultural reorientation. We're part of a new kingdom and there's a new way of doing things. Now, practically speaking, the king's speech, the Sermon on the Mount, um, is uh, is organized in a really beautiful way. Jesus keeps giving a general principle, and then he uses several examples to illustrate it. And so the first part of the speech is about the identity and character of the kingdom citizens. That's, that's you. The people who live in the kingdom of God, who they are, what their hearts are like, their purpose in the world. And then Jesus talks about kingdom citizens doing three different kinds of things, living towards God's law. That's where Jesus helps us understand the true spirit of God's laws and how they bring life. And then living in God's presence, which is where Jesus helps us reorient our lives around what God thinks rather than society. And then living under God's judgment, where he helps us consider how our lives will look when they're held up before God. What things will really matter and how to put those things first. And then at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus leaves us with a parable. It's a short story about building our lives on the right foundation, which is obedience to his teaching. And he asks us this question, will your house stand does it make you nervous having words like laws and judgment you know up on the screen that's what we're going to be talking about we don't love those things right but as we unpack those concepts we need to remember together all of us need to remember this is a vision for life it's not a rule book We don't apply this stuff legalistically or uh, mechanically. Instead, we're going to dig in and look for the spirit of the law. Because without the spirit, uh, the particular examples, they're going to feel overwhelming and defeating. But with the spirit, we might find that we are capable of even greater things than the Sermon on the Mount describes. And so I'm going to end with a word of caution. There are a couple of things that can derail us as we study the king's, uh, the king's speech. First of all, let's beware of dismissing the sermon as ridiculous. Okay? I've heard people do this. Like there's a line in there about if someone asks you for your coat, give them your shirt as well. Okay. And people will respond to that and say, like, get real. Right? If I just keep giving away my clothes every time anybody asks me, I'm going to walk around naked and frozen. Well, (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> okay. If putting, so here's, but here's the thing, because that happens, right? So if the idea of putting something into practice seems ridiculous and crazy to you, that's an indication that we've mistaken the spirit of that law. I mean, how often has somebody really asked you for the clothes off your back? Not very often, right? Not unless it's desperately needed. And so these ways to live are never ridiculous. So beware of dismissing them and writing them off that way. Second thing, beware of dismissing the sermon as impossible. Don't let yourself off the hook like that. These things are not impossible. Inconvenient, unconventional, strange, challenging, absolutely. But not impossible. In fact, we're meant to live this way. It's what we're created for, and it's possible to do it with God's help. All through the ages, Christians have taken this teaching seriously and lived it. And those Christians, those communities, are irresistible. And I see that here, you know. Actually, I'll invite the worship team to come back up. But I want you to know that I see those kinds of irresistible things here. Like when I ask people, why do you attend Erickson Covenant Church? I hear echoes of the Sermon on the Mount. Because people will say, I was welcomed so warmly. I was invited to belong and serve here even before I had all my stuff together. People helped me. They went out of their way to help me. They provided for me. I hear people cried with me. They laughed with me. They looked out for me. I actually really do hear this one. People are very humble. People are humble. I don't feel like people are trying to show off or prove something. People seem to really love each other and really love God. Those are good things, right? Those are really good ways that we're living. And so don't feel discouraged as we come to listen to this king's speech. Feel welcomed onto the mountainside, to the retreat with Jesus. Feel invited into these secret ways of life in the kingdom of God. Because, you know, you guys, I love being here at this church with you and in this town. I love doing life with you. And I wonder, what would happen if we actually lived this way? Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey, whether you're finding Jesus for the first time or you have been following him for years. Do you know someone who would be encouraged by what you heard today? We invite you to share this podcast so they can be encouraged, too. For more information or to ask more questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for the Erickson Covenant Church.